Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Good morning, North Sound Church. Good to be with you all and those watching us online. Thank you for joining us. And I also convey my appreciation to all our veterans here. Thank you for your service. Um, with that, I'll get going. I barely made it in the first service with my message. Um, anyways, <clears throat> we have been privileged to have, over the last couple of weeks, to have a wonderful exposition of what heaven is, what it looks like, our preconceived notions and miscommunications, or, or sorry, misconceptions about heaven, and all of that Pastor Barry very eloquently um, dealt with. So, and as I was preparing for today's, as he asked me to preach for today's sermon, he said, Finney, you can preach on anything you want. Uh, that's, that kind of freedom is challenging. <laughs> um, but anyways, I thought, let me not stray far away from the theme and uh, talk about heaven from a different perspective. With that, I would like to turn to today's key verse, that is Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 3. Blessed are the poor in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let that sink in. Blessed are the poor in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I had to think about this verse long and hard. What is exactly the author trying to say here? When I was in India, or if anybody of you all who have visited uh, countries in Asia, Africa, Latin America, where poverty is rampant, you come face to face and see the real implications of poverty. And I remember when I was drive, sometimes when I drive to work in my car and it just comes and stops at the signal and I can see a small child, with stomach all inside, cheeks all in, looking intently with moist eyes and uh, that draws you in a way that nothing can, no words can explain, and I would, whatever I could find, I would give. The predisposition of a heart that is in need, that is in lack, that is suffering anguish, is such that it looks to the one that he expects that the one can provide and one for that need. He knows that his hope or his source is from this one who can provide. Therefore, he perseveres the, the poor person in that position. And quoting back our words, the scripture says, the one who, was, who is poor in the spirit, the one who has the same attitude of heart to look towards heaven with moist eyes, outstretched arms, and ask of God, to such, God says, belongs all of heaven and everything in it. Mankind created by God in his image for his purposes. Prayer is that lifeline which connects the earth to heaven. Prayer lays hold of heaven. Angels pause when a crying heart, when a crying heart reaches out and cries to heaven and petitions on the door. Even more incredible, the sovereign God, who is awesome, and would condescend and look down and listen to that plea, and he would intervene to that plea. Prayer makes the presence, the power, the promises, and the provisions of God from heaven into temporal space. It brings eternity into time. Can we really fathom the, 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 the privilege, the scope, and the potential that, would, that verse entails? Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Should you persevere in that predisposition of heart? And should you ask of God, all of heavens is yours for the take. Billy Graham said, in this modern age in which we live, we have learned to harness the power of the atom. But few of us have developed or understood the power of prevailing prayer. We are yet to learn that man is more powerful on his knees than behind any of the powerful weapon systems he, can, he has. And that a nation is only powerful when it unites together in earnest prayer to God. No wonder when his disciples uh, accompanied Jesus in his entire work uh, in his ministry, they saw the amazing teachings, they saw miracles. Uh, but the one thing they asked of the Lord was, Lord, teach us to pray. That should make us pause and listen. What is this power of prayer? Two friends place a bet. One of them says, I'll give you 10 bucks if you can recite to me the Lord's Prayer. The other friend, other friend gladly accepts it, and he starts. Now I, lay my, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die to, before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. The other friend is like amazed and smiles and said, reaches out his pocket and gives us 10 bucks. I didn't know you could see that so perfectly. <laughs> well, I didn't know. Did you all get the joke? <laughs> well, 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 besides the humor that shows, uh, that shows how, what a colossal um, loss when we don't appreciate what prayer is and what prayer can do. Has prayer become a mere formality, a sacred tradition that one does to quieten the conscience? Memorize lines early in the morning, and then we get on with the busyness of the day, and then we come back, do the same, and then slump onto our beds. I praise God for them for whom this is not the case, but I've been guilty of this on few occasions. So what does genuine prayer look like? If there's anything you would want to take home, or take home from, this, from today's sermon, remember five... I would say four. I never made it to the five in the first sermon, uh, first session. So first, a genuine prayer is a heartfelt conversation. A genuine prayer is companionship. A genuine prayer in which you have the freedom to contend, to ask difficult questions. A genuine prayer in which you find consolation when things go differently than you expect. What's the conversation? A heartfelt prayer is a heart-to-heart -heart communication with God, with God, expressing your deepest desire, your longings, your fears, your aspirations to God. You don't have to have the perfect, eloquent words describing the attribute of the deity or structured pattern to make your petition more formal. No, it has to be a heartfelt, raw, as, as blunt as it can be, to God, because he knows it anyways, right? The Father knows what's in your heart and what, what's ailing you, and you'd rather be authentic when you speak to him. That's one of the hallmarks of a genuine prayer. Companionship. You experience the fellowship and the closeness of God from trivial things of getting up in the morning to serious things when you're sitting bedside to someone seriously ill. A genuine prayer life will help you experience the presence and the closeness of God in both the trivial and the serious circumstances. It could be verbal, and mostly it was nonverbal. Prayer 
becomes a lifestyle, a second nature. Case in point, um, we read in, in, in Genesis chapter 12 how Abraham, God calls Abraham. Abraham was the son of an idolater. He made, his father made idols. He held his father in his idol-making shop. And I'm assuming the scripture is silent, but uh, looking back, I, I can just think in my imagination at the end of the day after having made all the idols and the rich and the poor, the, the, the nobles and the common man coming and purchasing this worthless piece of mud and praying to it. Out of, I would, I'm assuming uh, Abraham would have felt such a deep sense of uh, frustration and he goes out and sits outside, looks at the stars, takes the sand of the desert in his hand and he longs for a deeper communion, a deeper conversation with something he knows exists. And I think that relationship developed. God communed and spoke and had companionship with, 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 with Abraham over the period of time. Because when, when you read in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 12, God says, Abraham, leave your father's place, leave the place you know, your family and, and everything, and go to a land that I'll show you. It's easy said than done back in the day when communities were far off, travels was always in, in groups of car in caravans and groups. You never made a solo journey back in the day. What made uh, Abraham take that bold step? It is a life of prayer, a life of constant communion and conversation and companionship with God that enabled him to take that step and walk uh, to where God was showing him. It helped him in the process as years went on, he became rich and everything, but he has no heir. And God promises him, Abraham, you look at the stars, you look at the sand, your descendants shall be as numerous and I'll bless you in the land. The deep... I just imagine, late night, he sits out and thinking, what will become of him? What will become of his family? And God makes us, makes us promise. It's during those time of conversation, of deep communion, that Abraham is able to persevere as age goes by. And as, he, as the writer of the Hebrew says, his body was as good as dead, yet he believed that God could do the miracle. It is the life of prayer that sustained a father as he took his son up the Mount of Moriah, only he knowing what is, what is going to happen in the next few minutes. And he's able to look at his son and look in his eyes and say, son, the Lord will provide. It is only a life of prayer, life of deep communion with God that one, that a father can make such a statement. This is hallmark of a genuine prayer life. The th so we spoke about heartfelt conversation. We spoke about experience, experiencing God's presence, God's um, closeness in all aspects of life. This is, um, this is a delusion that you can have a secular life and a sacred life. For a Christian, you just have one life, a life that's open and bare before God. And God... Uh, has sovereignty over all of it, should you, if you're willing to yield it to him. Uh, no, whether you will, are willing to yield it to him. The third aspect of uh, prayer life is contention. Since we're told prayer is a relationship, there is space in this relationship to ask difficult questions, to disagree for a time, to even complain. Genuine prayer perseveres through rough seasons where you are, by the grace of God, you're allowed to, to, to contend for the things that, that 
ail you. The Psalms, the Lamentation, the prophetic books all talk about this. Think about Moses. He's on the far side of the desert from royalty now to rags and he receives the call of God. God speaks to him through the burning bush and gives him a mandate. He resists but eventually yields himself. He experiences the communion and the closeness of God on the mountaintop, receiving the very laws of God in his hand. And the only person in biblical history to have received, to have heard God speak, I am who I am, the name of God. That was the level of communion and, and, and uh, uh, conversation that Moses was privileged to have. When a relationship is that deep, Moses had the audacity in, in, in Exodus 33 to say, he, every time the Israelite fumbled, made mistakes, rebelled, did things that was abomination to God, Moses stood in the gap. He was a great intercessor. He interceded for the nation and the Lord would yield. He prayed for the sake of the nation every time and God would yield. He comes to a point that even he demands of God, Lord, if you are not going with, the Lord is fed up with Israel. He says, there's a promised land. I'm going to send you angels. Go. I'm not coming. Moses had the audacity on the base of that relationship. Lord, if you're not coming with us, I'd rather not go to the promised land. I'd rather be here where I can have you in the wilderness rather than in the promised land with milk and honey or the royalties of Egypt. I'd rather have you. That's a hallmark of a prayer life where you cherish and, and, and love the communion that you have with God. And within that relationship, there's enough wiggle room to contend when life, when our prayers, uh, when we feel that our prayers are not answered in the way we expected. The fourth aspect of a genuine prayer life is consolation. The assurance of hope, comfort, and safety at the end of a contention that you resign with this confidence that though things transpired the way I did not expect, I know my God reigns, I know my God knows, and his will and his ways are perfect, better than, and better than mine. And God gives you the time to heal, it gives you the time to come to that closure, that consolation in him by the power of his word and by his Holy Spirit. Think of Job. He was a man who prayed for his family and for himself every morning he offered sacrifices. And we know the trials that came on his life. Wealth, health, children, everything got taken away. Finally, even his dearest wife asked him, curse God and die. But a man of prayer, a man who experienced the fellowship of God, the man who's heard from God would never say that. What does he say in Job 121? The Lord gave, the Lord took away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And as towards the end, we see when he has tested, I think in Job 23, verses 10, when he has tested me and tried me, I shall come forth as fine gold. Our prayer life gives us the resilience to find consolation at the end of a contentious prayer request. For many Again, blessed are the poor in spirit who intently looks to God, who communes with him, who seeks his presence, contends with him about his doubts, his hurts, his fears, 
and eventually resigns in this confidence that God knows he controls. He knows best. The kingdom of God, all of the kingdom of God belongs to the one who has such a predisposition of heart. Prayer is more than posture. Prayer is more than eloquent words, more than traditions and rituals. The leper came crying, falling at Jesus' feet and said, Lord, if you're willing, heal me. The Syrophoenician women came and fell at Jesus' feet and said, Lord, give me some crumbs. My daughter is held by forces beyond her control and it will kill her. There were no patterns of prayer here. It was heartfelt cry of a parent for her child. The thief on the cross, he knew no theology. Father, I mean, with the last breath, he could take his breath up and say, Father, remember me when you come. No, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Those are raw prayers that come from the bottom of a human heart. And God is never shy of hearing of such prayer. Prayer is not a laundry list of wants or boxes to be ticked off for sake of religious piety. The one who does not pray in secret, rather not pray in public, don't add to your condemnation. This is a rhetorical statement. What I mean is have a personal, private, secret prayer life and let that overflow in your public and your corporate prayer life. It is man's instinctive nature to pray, to cry out to the divine. It is what he was created for. There are no atheists in foxholes and war trenches. In the most difficult hours of our life, in dangers of mortal or of existential nature, even the hardened of the heart would look up for, a, for God to intervene. You are what your prayer life is, no greater, no less. No man, no woman is greater than his prayer life. Two small points. Sometimes we use the provisions and the promises of God for utilitarian purposes. We seek to fulfill and further our own agenda, polish it with Christian terms and theology, but in the heart of hearts, we are not seeking God's will. We are using prayer as a tool of consumption. But oftentimes, prayer becomes a prayer which is usually a place for people to come down and lay their burden. Prayer also becomes a place where God, for those who have surrendered their lives to Him through, all the, through the communion and the conversation, prayer becomes a place where God places a burden on the select choice few. Often, prayer becomes a place for men and women who have yielded themselves to a life of communion with God that He lays a burden a vision for the kingdom. Pastor mentioned about TTI. A lot of that was undergrid by prayer and people who are burdened in the time of that prayer and they go out to the unknown, trusting God to do the impossible. David Brainerd, the missionary to the American Indians, his life, though just 29 years in all, was a flame for God. He was trained in Yale to be a minister. He could have chosen different routes, but in prayer he found his call to minister to the American Indians in Delaware and in New Jersey. A man of lean constitution, not of great health. Despite his physical limitation, the power of prayer helped him prevail in his missionary work among the Indians. The Indians called him the pale face praying man. 
There were, there were no stately buildings. There were no church. Their houses were not warmed. He was exposed to the elements of nature, rain, wind, storm, snow. And he did not find initial success in his missionary work. Despite that, he would spend hours, weeks, years in persistent prayer and fasting. And in his deepest, and on those nights when he felt the contention was strong, why is Lord not answering? He would write down his memoirs in his book. He would write down his memoirs. He never, saw, never thought that these would ever see the light of the day. He dies at the age of 29, not fully seeing the fruits of his labor. Of him, says John Wesley, let every preacher carefully read the life of David Brainerd, the great John Wesley. It was prayer life that helped this weak man to sustain in the forests of Delaware, ministering to the Indians. John Wesley, he would rise at 4 a.m. every day to see God's face. Every four hours of his, the initial four hours of his life would be spent in prayer and seeking God's fellowship, a con- intimate conversation, a communion with God, asking of him, Lord, what should I do? He was deeply burdened for the renewal and revival in England. No wonder it was his power of prayer that helped him throughout his ministry to crisscross on horseback 250,000 miles ministering and preaching. Think about that. Our cars don't do that. He preached 40,000 sermons. He wrote over 400 books. He's just of my height. (laughs) A man not of a great physical uh, stature, but he was a man of deep prayer. Four hours of his, and they say in the later years of his life, he would pray for eight hours. It is the power of prayer that made possible what we think uh, what made John Wesley who he is. Fast forward 200 years down the line. A theology professor takes a group of 40 theological students to John Wesley's home at Epworth Rectory. And he shows the place. This is a place where he, John Wesley kneeled down to pray, the worn-out carpet near his bed. And, um, and, the tour, and after the tour, all the students are huddled back in the bus. And the professor makes a head count. And he sees one is missing. And he goes back to see who is the one. And um, finally, he sees a student kneeling down at the very spot and praying and pleading, Lord, do it again. Lord, do it again. Do it again in me. And he guesses who this person was. The student was the late Reverend Dr. Billy Graham. David Breen had never realized what he did in the secret closet of the forest of Delaware would impact a man like John Wesley. And John Wesley's prayer room would impact a man like Billy Graham. And um, one more person took, to, took heed to John Wesley's advice, William Carey. He read the book of David Brainerd, and he comes to India and brings the Bible, the English Bible, to the local languages of India. By faith, inspired by the prayer life of Brainerd, he himself becomes a prayer warrior, and his motto becomes, Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. These are people, flesh and blood, just like you and us. Yet, what the only thing that differentiated them was their prayer life. There are many other names, Charles Finney, D.L. Moody, Amy Carmichael, George Miller, David Livingston. Please take your time and read the lives of these people and you realize God accomplished through their lives 
much because of their prevailing, persisting, never giving up prayer. Many of them did not see the fruits of the labor. It is only the church was the beneficiary of their lives and of their prayer. I'll speak of one, Hudson Taylor, the missionary to China, Inland Mission. Praying parents, if you have a son or a daughter who is not in the Lord, never cease praying, never. Hudson Taylor was a prodigal. His parents kept on praying for him. Eventually, the Lord takes a hold of him, and he meets God. God meets him in the moment of in the hour of prayer, converses with him, burns in him a conviction so deep that he that he becomes a missionary to China. Once we have that experience, once we have the burning bush moment, uh, that's that's a scar that you get branded, and then that, that stays with you. Hudson Taylor, despite the perils of the journey, the hostile nature of mission work in China, nothing deterred him. He continued working in China. It hurts most when we see our loved ones uh, are affected. In, in this mission field in China, he lost his eight-year-old daughter, one-week-old son, and eventually his wife, who was just 33 years. Despite all this, he prayerfully pens the following. Alone, yet not alone. Cast down, but not forsaken. His bosom, my resting place forever. Hudson Taylor continues and finishes his work in 19, for 30 more years in China and finally goes on to be with the Lord in 1905. These people, the names I just took, they recognized their call in the hour of prayer. They embarked on the call despite opposition by the power of prayer. They persevered in the call despite the hostilities, the losses, the privations they faced by the grace of prayer. And they completed the course of their life and with prayerful resignation. We have barely scratched the surface of the possibilities of what God might do with us if we can even get a spark of their prayer life. Dr. A.W. Tozer made the statements, we will hardly get our feet out of time into eternity and gaze at eternity and bow our heads in shame and humiliation and say, my God, look at the riches that were for us in Christ Jesus. And I come to the judgment seat of pauper. Wished I'd prayed more, wished I'd fasted more, wished I'd worked more. Ordinary men, for ordinary men, a prayer become a place where you lay down your burdens. But for men whom God, who surrendered their lives, prayer become a place where God laid his burden on them and used them in a way that, the, that they left a mark in history. There's one more aspect of prayer. As the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. Um, and Jesus lays down a, a model and he says, when you pray, pray like this. I don't think Jesus meant as a rote repetition, but rather this is the model of how you ought to pray. And then, uh, many times, and we stop there, but we always forget there's an illustration, a parable mentioned just below the Lord's Prayer of what ought to be uh, the driving force of that prayer. I, I won't have time to go through that, but uh, take a time and read. It talks about a friend who keeps on knocking, keeps on asking, keeps on seeking another friend in the middle of the night for some provision. Eventually, initially, the friend resists, saying, the door is locked, my kids are sleeping, go away. 
but he persists the knock, he persists the cry, and finally the friend's friend opens the door. Why did Jesus highlight this parable? It speaks about, we see the relationship of friendship preceded the asking, right? It was his friend. He could go to him. Prayer demands that we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ's son. Second, the nature of the need should be consistent with the expected duties of the host. Back in the day in the Middle East, hospitality is considered to be of the highest priority. Even if, even if you have a guest who comes in the middle of the night, it's your duty to accommodate them, to feed them, and to clothe them. And it is for this need that he runs in the middle of the night to his friend. Those needs are consistent with the expected duties of the host. Our prayers when we ask ought to be consistent with the revealed will of God, his character, his purposes, and his sovereignty. I don't think he would have got the same response had he gone in the middle of the night to ask for a video game or for a DVD. James 4.6, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives to expend it on your own pleasure. Those prayers are not answered. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The one who diligently seeks receives nothing short of God himself. Because as you come to the end of that parable, he says, how much more the Father in heaven, if you persistently ask and seek and knock, he would give you the Holy Spirit. If you ask, you receive God himself. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Is that our attitude? Prayer is the language of the poor in spirit. The self-satisfied don't need to pray. The self-sufficient don't want to pray. And the self-righteous cannot pray. Of all the people that Jesus admonished the most was the group of the Pharisees. They knew how to pray. They knew all the patterns of praying. They knew where the time and hour of praying. They knew where to turn to when you pray. They knew everything about prayer. Yet, looking at them, Jesus says, you pray with your lips, but your heart is far away. Beware of this East. He wants his disciples. Our prayer lives ought not to be like that. prayer, we, we see this young man, another parable, we see this young man coming and running up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? Sell everything. Come, come to me. Come to me. What did the man do? The Luke says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. You ask for eternal life, Come, I am eternal life incarnate right here. The man went home sad because he had much riches. What a colossal loss. What a colossal loss. He held on to his little pails. He came and almost touched incarnate, the, the incarnate eternal life. But what a tragedy. Prayer lays hold of heaven and eternity itself. There's no power that can resist it. And... and should a human soul prevail in it. Pastor Robin came back from his missionary trip and he shared about how in a country they don't have, they don't have religious freedom. And I've lived in a country that have shared experiences where churches, seminaries, uh, rectories were locked for 70, 80 plus years. Uh, priests and missionaries were exiled and killed. Uh, Bibles and books were burned, religious books were burned. God forbid, we, ha- we should not take our liberties for granted here. But... Even if all that happens, 
there's one thing, no law, there's one thing no tyrant can take away. What is that? It is the predisposition of our heart to look up to heaven and cry out and to seek and to knock and to ask. No law, no tyrant can take away that uh, privilege. The freedom and the ability to pray is fundamental to human nature and human, human existence. You don't need to have order in prayer. You can pray, lay out your heart as it is. Some prayer had no words. A mother stranded in a wilderness can't bear the sight of, his chi- of her child dying, places the child under, under a bush, goes a, far away and weeps. The child is crying, the mother is crying. No words are expressed here. The angel of God looks down and says, Hagar, go pick your child. I have made provision for you. Some prayers don't have words. Jacob, as he was running away from his family home in Beersheba, he's supposed to go to Haran, which is 450 miles. He's alone, not knowing how he'll even, whether he will even make it. He doesn't have the provisions. And out of sheer tired and exhaustion, he takes a stone and lies there and sleeps. We, the, the scripture doesn't record of any words coming out of Jacob's mouth, but he sees a dream, and in that dream, the Lord promises, I will accomplish everything that I've promised to you and to your father. Some prayers have no words. Jesus modeled a life of consistent and prevailing prayer. Marx talks about how early in the morning he would find a solitary place and pray. We should do the same. After a, a full day of amazing ministry work, he uh, feeding the 5,000, he, he, and late in the night, he goes to a mountainside and he prays. Time was not a barrier, despite his busy schedule. Every Sabbath, he made his point. He made it a point to go to the local synagogue and pray. Every miracle by, was preceded by a word of prayer. However, the greatest prayer meeting occurred in the Garden of Gethsemane, where for the salvation of the human race, and, and when all forces of evil and the weight of the sin of humanity and God's wrath was poured out, Jesus prayed. They say the, the, the victory of the cross was won in that prayer meeting in the garden. The cross was just a follow-up event. The determination to go through this, despite the sheer overwhelming fear, and asking of the Father, take away this cup of suffering, but yet not my will, but your will be done. Our salvation was sealed in a prayer meeting in the garden. He invited three disciples to, be, to come for that meeting, but now we know the story. He was alone. Conversation, companionship, contention. And Luke says, an angel of the Lord appears to strengthen him because the will of the Father is Jesus hath to drink the full cup of God's judgment. He, he finds consolation in the presence of the angel. Some prayers to the answers are direct. Some prayers are delayed. Some prayers are differently answered. And in some cases, the, the denial of the prayer request is the answer itself. There is nothing that is impossible to God. He is able to do everything. He knows the end from the beginning. As temporal beings, the uncertainties and the concerns of the future affect us, but not him. He is a good God who has our best interest at hand. At times, he allows trials and afflictions to beset the righteous so that 
His choice people are sanctified and, pres and preserved for his purposes on earth and in eternity. John 15 says he prunes some branches so that it might bear fruit. Earlier in the service, I, I mentioned about, we always tell you when we come up here to take the connect cards and to fill in those details with your prayer requests that you have. Uh, and Ms. Jan in our office finally she puts it all in a digital format, and we have it saved, and we go through it in a pastoral meeting. But for me, the connect cards are more—I'm uh, more attached to that. I—I—I I, I look at it. I see a person took time, and a pen, and wrote down their hearts, their hearts need over there, and I take that prayer request, uh, connect cards with me to my office. And um, one of the connect cards uh, of the many. Let me share this with you. Uh, for the la oh, for oh, for the last one year. Um, I received 12 connect cards. Nine of them were from a parent praying for healing of their daughter from a condition that was, for which there was not much medical hope. Month after month, she, the parent constantly sought, asked, and seeked God's healing in that matter. The last three of the connect cards I saw, the parent write, uh, Please pray that the Lord will take away this cup of suffering from our daughter. It's too hard to see. And uh, when I'm reading this, I have my, f my family's picture right in front of me. And I think, what does it take for a parent to write that? And I prayed. And um, last week, it seemed that prayer was answered. And the daughter went on to be with the Lord. There is no finality to the Christian life on this side of eternity. Some prayers may seem unanswered. The grace of God in Christ Jesus will allow us to struggle with it. But eventually his word and his spirit will bring us the consolation. We ought to leave the matter to rest in God's sovereign and perfect will. It's easier said than done. But the prayers and the days and hours of prayerful intercession will be our receipts when we finally come to his kingdom. Psalms 56, 8. He keeps a track of all our sorrows. He collects all our tears in his bottle. He records each one of them. We may or may not see the answer, but the receipts, God has it. And I'm thinking, when the parent who wrote this, when God comes in his kingdom and with the receipts and, well, here's your daughter, the receipts are irrelevant. Parents, pray for your children. Never cease praying. Pray for your spouses. Pray for Israel as it goes through an existential crisis. Pray for this country. We ought to pray. We are called to pray. We are commanded to pray. The prayer ministry of intercession is one of the greatest ministries that we could do. We would be walking in our Savior's footsteps because he's interceding for us at the Father's right hand. I can't speak, one cannot preach a sermon on prayer without quoting Paul. Opening that is opening a big, <laughs> but I would like to quote what Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. Rejoice always, give thanks in all circumstances. We may not like all circumstances, but if you are there, give thanks for that circumstance and, and pray without ceasing. 
for it is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it's important we look to our lives and see how is our prayer life. We are no greater, no lesser than our prayer life. If we can lay hold of that, all of, king, all of the kingdom of God is at our disposal for the glory of God. I would like to ask the worship team to come up. It was Veterans Day, and um, President Thomas Jefferson, March 4, 1801. Almighty God, who has given us this good land for our heritage, we humbly beseech thee that we may always prove ourselves a people mindful of thy favor and glad to do thy will. In closing, he writes, in time of prosperity, fill our hearts with thankfulness, and in day of trouble, Suffer not our trust in thee to fail, all of which we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Benjamin Franklin, in his message to the Constitution Assembly, I have lived, sir, a long time, longer enough to see the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is probable no empire will. In closing, he writes, Therefore I beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on, all, on our deliberation be held in every assembly every morning as we proceed for business. I quoted two of the most least religious founding fathers of, the, of, your, of this country. They, we have to pray for our country. <laughs>